0: Hey, I'm Alex Crow, and this is the Creative Pursuits Podcast. Thank you for being here. I just wanted to take this time at the outset of the show to let you know that we've been doing this for a little bit, and if you're looking for content, be sure to check out our back catalog. I've had some really cool conversations with people who have lived all manner of creative lives, and those episodes are just sitting there waiting for you on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this thing, please subscribe. But look, I'll level with you, okay? I mean, now, if any time, is is the perfect opportunity, to be honest, right? So if you're lukewarm about this podcast, if you've listened to us before, or maybe you just outrightly despise it, whether it be you find its composition vapid or lacking in some way, perhaps you possess some personal animus towards me. Whatever the reason is, I implore you, I ask that you just at least stick around for this episode before leaving zero stars and unsubscribing, because we actually do recommend a lot of other really cool stuff today. And what can I say? My guest has great taste. Cool. Thanks. I never- To creative Pursuits, the podcast for and about the modern-day creative professional. Look, there's a lot going on out there in the world. You don't need me to tell you that, but today, I want to talk about Netflix, the streamer who right now, more than ever before, serves a vital role as both a pastime and as a means of cultural discourse. Well, I am stoked to have Daniel Hendler on the podcast today. Daniel is a writer-producer on the forthcoming Netflix show, Unorthodox which is premiering this week, specifically Thursday, March 26th. Unorthodox was created by Anna Winger and Alexa Karolinski, based off a memoir by Deborah Feldman. It is the story of a young, ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman. More specifically, she's a member of the Satmar Hasidic Group in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, who decides to flee her arranged marriage and religious community to start a new life abroad in Berlin, Germany. You can check out the trailer now, online, on YouTube. And the book that serves as the source material for the show is entitled Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots, and that is by the aforementioned Deborah Feldman. That New York Times bestseller is widely available now, having been originally published in 2012. So on today's episode, Daniel and I talk unorthodox, we talk life as an expat writer, we talk Netflix and even some book recs recommendations. And Daniel's very high concept TV series idea—it's a sad con, people. I hope you're ready for it. I also get Daniel's thoughts on that Game of Thrones finale because, let's face it, I don't know about you, but I'm still not over it. Before before we go any further, allow me to chime in with a word from our sponsor, Team People. Well, as I release this podcast, the rules of life and work life in particular. ...are changing daily. The fact of the matter is that whatever your situation may currently be, Team People's production managers are staying on top of all of their clients' needs, from remote support for video teleconferences to getting news production crews deployed where needed. Always at the forefront of work-from-home solutions, Team People is providing producers, designers, and editors, among other skills, keeping the content pipeline flowing for broadcast, corporate, and government clients. Get over to teampeople.tv, check out their job board, and get your particulars into their system. There is work happening, and there will be in the future, and the folks at Team People will go to work for you. Top brands look to team people for top talent, so get over to teampeople.tv, and remember to track, keep track of team people uh, on Twitter as well. Give them a follow. Why not? Now, this upcoming portion of the podcast was recorded via Zoom simultaneously in Los Angeles, California and Vienna, Austria. Without any further ado, my conversation with Daniel Henry. I watched the trailer. Um, the, trailer looks, the trailer looks really cool. I mean, it almost it reminds me cuz she she moves to a new city. I don't know if you saw that um that show Sweet Bitter, but it's about the the waiters in New York. And she moves from like <laughs> I,
1: I know about it from, mostly from you. Yeah. So she
0: moves to uh New York City from Ohio. Um and they 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 don't show her. They don't show her like previous life whereas your show it seems as if they do show you know her her life before and then after moving to this new city. But it seems like she moves into this new hipster milieu, but it's, she actually is leaving Williamsburg. Yeah, that's the
1: funny part. Not the hipster
0: Williamsburg. So just to give people who aren't familiar with the story uh, an idea of kind of what they're getting into if they decide to watch this, um, why don't you just talk a little bit about you know, the, the source material and what the show Unorthodox is about?
1: Well, it's inspired by a memoir by this woman named Deborah Feldman, and she is in the an ex member of the Satmar community, which is what the the Jewish community. They're an ultra ultra orthodox sect of Judaism, primarily based in Williamsburg, but they're also in London and Antwerp, and and I think a few other uh, communities, but centered really in Williamsburg. And her true story, which is what the show as I said, inspired by, not strictly based on, is that she was, grew up in this community, was, you know, in an arranged marriage, like a lot of people are, and ended up leaving after the birth of her son. And I mean, I just encourage anyone listening to check out the memoir. It's it's really great. I mean, she can describe her own story much better than we can. And in real life, she was in the States for a while and she kind of bounced around and ended up settling in Berlin, which is where she lives now. And our show kind of is based on the, her growing up in Williamsburg is more close to the book. And then we kind of took a lot of creative liberties or complete creative liberties of how she comes to Berlin. And really it's a, it's a completely different character. And that was something that Anna Winger and Alexa, the two creators of the show, really wanted to do, and that Deborah wanted to do, just because it, it gave us a little more freedom with the story. And, you know, there, isn't, there was already such a heavy responsibility, which we can talk about later, about portraying this kind of smaller community um, or subculture that we wanted to get that really right. So at least it was nice. To have a fictional or more fictional character to kind of tell the story we wanted to tell of her coming to Berlin.
0: So just based off of what I saw from the trailer, there does seem to be a really high degree of cultural authenticity to this piece, right? And so you basically just took the memoir as the source material, but how how influential was Deborah Feldman, the memoirist, and what kind of what kind of ex people that are members of the Satmar community, did you bring in to, you know, help help to really nail down that cultural authenticity? We had a
1: Yiddish consultant, and this is something that should not be a, a secret to anyone who's seen the trailer, but the show is about half in Yiddish. Uh, and his name is Ellie Rosen. He kind of wore the most hats and, you know, after Anna and Alexa is probably the most important person in the show and Chira, of course, our star. And he is also ex Satmar or he's ex Satmar adjacent to a similar community. And like a lot of people who leave, he gets into the arts, he's an actor, but he also does a lot of work consulting for film and television. Um, so he's done a lot of, he's consulted on a lot of US movies and I'm not actually sure how Anna and Alexa found him, but he basically did, he did so much. He did kind of all, like, he did all our Yiddish translations. He acted in the show as the rabbi. He was our cultural consultant. He helped out delivering props for us and things like that. He helped us get extras. He knew a lot of the people from the, uh, the Yiddish, uh, I'm blanking on their exact name now, but like the Yiddish theater, the new Yiddish theater in New York, uh, we used some of our actors. And um, yeah, he was really like the all-star right. of the show. Uh, And, you know, a lot of it is, it'll be interesting to see when the show comes out, what we're kind of, what we get right, what we're criticized for. And we we tried, really, I think every effort was taken to nail down like the details to the smallest degree to the point where, I mean, this is kind of a, a funny story. And we were doing a props walkthrough before we went into production and Yiddish, probably not a lot of people know, but I mean, Yiddish is like, Is still spoken, it's still a native language. I didn't know before really joining this project that so many, there were so many native Yiddish speakers, but a lot of Orthodox communities use it as their native language, but it's written in Hebrew lettering. You know, it's, it sounds Germanic. It sounds a lot like German, but it's not written in Latin lettering. So we had all these books that we were looking through that were written Yiddish, but looks like Hebrew. And, you know, you went to Hebrew school, right? We were both, we were both bar mitzvahs, but yeah. I remember how to read Hebrew. I, I don't. I remember the letters at least, the alphabet. Mrs. Finkelstein. But we're looking at all these books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Ellie picks one out and he's like, "We can't use this one. We can't use this this book." And I was like, "Why? It's it's written in Yiddish. It's a hardback. It's going to be in the background. Like, who's going to even if you froze the frame and zoomed in, you probably wouldn't even be able to read it." He's like, "Just open the open the cover and you'll see." And we open it up, and then written in Latin, it's like the the uh, New Testament translated into Yiddish, printed in like 1920 something. <laughs> so it was really like, every, I don't know how, I think Alexis somehow, our, our co-creator, that was like one of the hundreds of books that she found for us. Obviously we didn't end up using that one in right. the show, but um, that was kind of the level of, of um, that was the attention to detail that, that we had. And you know, some of the stuff, uh, there's a big, and also in the trailer, there's a big wedding scene and Satmar weddings are very different than, Jewish weddings are Are different than uh, non-Jewish weddings and Satmar weddings are different than what most people who know Jewish weddings know them to be. So there was a lot that was put into that. And I, I really think, I'm curious to see what we're told we got right, what we got wrong. And some of the stuff, as Ellie would tell us, you know, he's like, these are not even though it is a subculture it is a smaller community these are not completely homogenous communities so different families different people have slightly different rituals and different things that they want to do uh but so sometimes we would say what's you know what's right for this what's the way this food would be served what's the you know what's this what would people be wearing here how would they handle their phones you know they have they have kosher phones what kind of bags would they use? And Ellie would say, "Well, I would use this, but it's not you know, homogenous. It's, like it's not just bascul- one. It's
0: not, right. Yeah, there's deviation amongst the different communities that are spread out amongst our uh, our diaspora, right?
1: Yeah, deviation amongst different households Certainly. too. There's still personal preference. So yeah,
0: but th- this wasn't. This is a Netflix production, but it wasn't an American production. You guys, you're you were working out of Berlin by and large, other than the the stuff you shot on set in New York. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and and I should say most of it was shot in Berlin. So we only had about a week in New York and that was for exteriors. The stuff set in Williamsburg was interiors, was with maybe an exception in a hallway or something like that was all in Berlin. And it actually worked out well because the kind of the the decor or the, I don't know what you call it, the interior design sensibilities of a lot of the aesthetic community, it kind of feels like old world, you know, like mid-century Europe. So the layout of some of the Berlin apartments worked really well, but more importantly than that, we just had an amazing, amazing production designer, um, Silka. her name was, and, and just did such a fantastic job recreating, like just doing the, the wedding hall and the interiors of the apartments. And we did a little bit of studio work, but a lot of it was on location. Uh, and it was, she was just fantastic. I mean, she's also someone like up there with Ellie, all the department heads were so good. Um, but yeah it was i'm so, sorry i lost is it track similar, of the is, it sim- is it similar <laughs> is
0: it similar working on a production that's based out of berlin a german production as oh, opposed yeah, to an american yeah. production
1: oh yeah that's why i lost track because it's such a confusing show we're we're such a weird orphan of netflix in a way because they have netflix us they have all these you know local hubs and there is netflix europe and it's out of based out of amsterdam but a lot of the production in Netflix is local. So they have local executives in France and Germany and Scandinavia and Italy and everywhere else. And usually this is constantly changing and I have no knowledge of the interior workings of Netflix, but a lot of their shows abroad outside of the UK and US are, are supposed to trying to be local, right? They're servicing local markets. And our show, you know, Anna Winger, the, the creator and Alexa, the co-creator, Anna's is American but has been living in Germany for 20 years. Alexa grew up in Berlin, but is now living in LA, and is also half Canadian. I'm American, but I've been living in Europe for almost a decade. Uh, and we worked directly with the Amsterdam, the executives in Amsterdam. So it is Netflix Europe, but our main executive was um, is American. Um, so it's kind of a weird hodgepodge of a show. And I'm not sure if it is considered a German show or a European show or an American show. It's kind of a it really is a global show. It's definitely a Jewish show. Right. Um, it doesn't really fit into the normal slots of a. Of a Netflix and and for you,
0: yeah, yes, you've been living in Europe for a decade, but you you you've worked in the Hollywood system here domestically in the United States. Is it is it much different working in their system, working with Netflix Europe as opposed to working on an American show or in the American system?
1: Yeah, it's weird. You know, I was in. A, executive, really low-level executive in the US, I never was doing any kind of writing producing work like I am here. So all my really my knowledge of the US is more secondhand, I would say. But it is very different. The writing process is is fairly different, uh, which I can get into if you if you'd like the production process is certainly different just because there's no, you know, the US, the big advantage of the US, you have what, 350 million people or or so and no European country has nearly that much. So budgets are smaller, of course, Uh, usually less time shooting. We, I would say, had a pretty good budget by a German show, but it was still, you know, it's it's a small, it's a small four episode character driven drama. It's not like Game of Thrones or anything. But in general, I just say like everything's, the, the talent is spectacular here, but in terms of like money and time and size of the production, usually everything's like a little for comparing apples to apples for the type of show everything's a little bit less fewer people yeah fewer days fewer days in the writer's room definitely
0: something that has always fascinated me is the writer's room dynamic you look at a show like seinfeld it was created by larry david you know he's the head writer he wrote the pilot he wrote a lot of the episodes but you know they had hundreds of episodes he wasn't writing every single one but they all still have that Larry David flavor to them. So this wasn't your your show. Obviously, this was adapted by the Deborah Feldman source material, but the showrunner was Anna Winger, and as well as as Alexa. Um, mm-hmm. What was it like working in that dynamic and taking their voice and adapting it to to yours? I mean, what was that? How did you find that that medium and what was that kind of integration process like for you?
1: Yeah, for me, it wasn't so hard because I do a lot of that. I've been in a lot of writer's rooms. Um, and I guess for, I think most people now are familiar. It's it's become so such a part of the zeitgeist. The idea of the showrunner is like the auteur, kind of like what the director is seen as in, in movies. So, And I'm a believer of that. I mean, Anna, um, as showrunner, is someone who, is loath to claim that anything is her. She's the first one to always say, this is like, really, you can't ascribe this to one person. But I do, I personally do think there's something to having one kind of like creative backstop when there is a, in, like a decision that has to be made. Um, and so that person's the one deciding it and that's the showrunner. And I think personally, my feeling is that should be the writer, which in the US and UK is a given. In Europe, it's kind of a newer idea. But being a staff writer is kind of a different thing. It's really more like having a regular job. I mean, you are work, your show, the showrunner is your boss. Uh, and you as a writer are really trying to help execute a, a collective vision, definitely. But really, ultimately, like they're the in the driver's seat. So really, it's more, I would say it's more me or any staff writer, you're kind of adapting your voice to fit the needs of the show. And that's why for such a long time, and still, I think it was... Now if you're trying to break into the to, to being a screenwriter a television writer in the US it used to be that they didn't really want original material they wanted you to write an episode of someone else's show not because they wanted to use that episode they usually wanted you to write an episode of a show that wasn't the show you were applying for but it was more to see if you could adapt your voice to fit the, the voice of the show so that's really like the I, I think the the Sometimes it's a bit of a challenge. It, you know, it depends on you having a good fit with the showrunner and being a good fit for the show. But in a way, I think it's really, I, I really love it being kind of a writer. I'd say closer to the, hopefully closer to the beginning of my career than the end of it. But um,
0: what was your relationship with Anna like?
1: It was great. She was the best. She is the best boss you could ever ask for. And when you're and this a showrunner.
0: This is your first show, but this is not her, her first Go no,
1: she has, a, she has a great story. I mean, she's been so well publicized by now just because she did the show uh, called Deutschland 83. That is a totally, it's a German language show. It's a spy show set in the 80s. It's I, really terrific. I think it's one of the best German language shows ever made. But I really think it's, I consider it an American show because Anna did it with her husband, Jörg. But um, she did that. She, just, she didn't come from a writing background. She actually was a photographer and I think worked in advertising for a while. And then just, you know, she wrote a novel that that I think did really well or or did pretty well and then tried her hand at writing and is like one of the, I think, you know, one in a million people who like writes their first and it's actually good enough to attract interest and get produced. And especially in Germany, which does not have a tradition of, of, let's say, groundbreaking television or even like anything that's not like a crime drama, really. And she got that made and it was a big hit in the US, all over, and then she did the second season and now this is basically her her next show, her second show.
0: And so you really enjoyed working with her on this, huh?
1: She's great, I mean, when you're working for a show, being a showrunner, it's like, you have to be a writer, first of all, like a good writer, but you also be a really good manager because you're steering this massive ship. Even for a show as small as ours, there are just hundreds of people that are working on it and various departments that are all have to communicate with each other. And they're all looking to the showrunner to kind of execute that to, to for direction, right? Uh, and Anna is just terrific writer, such a good writer, and just so for me, my role is like a very specific TV thing. It's like called the being the second, where our show, our writers' room was so small. It was me, Anna, and Alexa. Alexa actually got pregnant really early on in the process uh, and was present throughout. Um, but they kind of needed a third writer and someone who's gonna be on set every day. And yeah, that role, it's called the second, like in a duel, I guess, is where it comes from, which I guess sometimes it can feel that way. Although generally everything worked really smoothly on our show. Um, and yeah, I was basically, you know, you're the writer, but you're basically the representative of the showrunner. So I was kind of representing Anna. So for me, it was kind of tough because I have all these department heads. I'm not, it's not my show, you know. But I, I'm i the one there that has to kind of know what she would want. I can't be, you know, you can't be calling her all the time for everything. She was on set a lot. But then there's all these other parts of the show, like setting up post-production and marketing and some of this network stuff that she had to tend to. And it was like a really, it's a really steep learning curve. And I can imagine if you have a difficult or bad boss, it could just really be a nightmare because these shows take over your whole life for a year or more. And just Anna was so encouraging and supportive. And really, I I felt empowered me to to feel comfortable to make certain decisions. Like, I think very quickly I was able to know, like, this is a decision that I can just make. This is something I should talk to Anna about. This is something I can just say no to right away because I know she's not going to go for it. And there was a lot of trust. And I hope that trust, you know, for her paid off.
0: It's like the Yiddish... It's the Yiddish Sweet Bitter, man. I'm all in. I can't wait. Um,
1: well, it's a Jewish show, so there's a lot of food. So the Sweet Bitter comparisons are maybe may more apt than they
0: seem. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, this is, re- this is a really, in so many ways, it's an exciting time for you. You're a full-blown writer, producer. You had a, a huge hand in this. This was a very intimate writer's room, but it was a big production, a big Netflix production. You watched the trailer. The production values are through th- off the charts, um, it looks great, it sounds great, uh, it's so thematic, and and you know I can't wait to watch it. M- my point is, you know, in so many ways this is a- an exciting time for you. But obviously, there's a lot going on in the world right now. We're dealing with a global <laughs> pandemic, is there? the coronavirus, and I'm just I'm wondering what what impact have you felt of this issue that at this point we're all dealing with, it must have altered the the marketing the marketing for for unorthodox in in some way. I mean we're less than a week away from unorthodox debuting on netflix what what effects have you seen on the of the coronavirus on the show and then just in your career? first of all, I'll say that
1: I and the show are just like incredibly fortunate to not have had to suffer really anything more than like the my mi- me personally like the minor inconvenience of my son being out of kindergarten or pre sorry, that's what the Germans call uh, preschool and me being way behind in the deadline because I'm with them all day. But uh and the show <laughs> weirdly, the marketing did not change. And I think it was just everything happened so quickly that we have now billboards up in Berlin. Just today I got on Instagram and I think everyone in the show Instagrammed it. We have our like, what do you call like electronic billboard, like the moving billboards? Uh, up in Times Square, the LED. In New York. The, <laughs> LED, now, the like, LED billboards. <laughs> the LED billboard, yeah. Yeah, we got one up there. And it's amazing. Netflix did such a cool job. Uh, and like these different billboards that like very different words, like unconventional, whatever, and then ending on unorthodox. And I hope someone can see it, or I guess people see it on social media. Based on the, the pictures I saw, we're definitely going to have good awareness amongst the NYPD because they seem to be
0: out there looking the, at it
1: the only people <laughs> right. in times square yeah. right now but uh, luckily also being on netflix i think so many people rely on just like going on the platform you've got your algorithm right. if you've watched this show or that show it's going to be one of the moving trailers up there and i assume that's how uh, most of the most audiences will become aware yeah. of it
0: well n- now more than ever is the time that the masses need streaming content. Let's be honest. You know, I've I've gone through all of my different apps, looking at what to watch. You know, I I wish Netflix would start like dropping more kind of big name content just to fill this void. This this all this time that's freed up for for people. But we thankfully we do have unorthodox coming. It's less than a week away. You you clearly have your hands full. You still have some deadlines. You have your son. But let's let's get some Netflix wrecks out there.
1: First of all, not not virus stuff. Uh, I noticed like a lot of my friends we've been talking, like some some other writers and just general friends, and everybody's watching yeah. Outbreak and Contagion. And for me, I am not. I'm like on CNN and the Austrian news yeah. site just constantly. Just you know, it's like tapped into my veins like a yeah. COVID nineteen drug or something. So I do not mm-hmm. need any more of that in my fiction. I've been doing like a lot of just like I have just been into kind of pre, pre-Golden Age TV lately. So I've been re-watching, as you know, like mm. we're both big fans of the X-Files. I've been going through the X-Files. Uh, I've been doing mm. some NYPD blue just for like a little David Milch hit, because I've also been re-watching Deadwood, which is yeah, a little in the in the golden age. Just did Watchmen, as we talked about before the right. podcast, and I love that. And yeah, reading a lot, man. I've uh, been slowly making my way through the uh, Gravity's Rainbow, the Thomas Pynchon tome. Yeah. So I figured now would be a good time for that. Agreed. But I don't know what's. I'm curious. What's on your playlist?
0: Well, I just I just finished reading uh, this incredible book. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's called Educated by Tara Westover. Uh, it's it's a memoir. I looked her up after. I mean, her story is just so amazing. She grew up in Idaho. Her father was a survivalist. She essentially received no education until she went off to BYU when she was 17 years old. Next thing you know, she's at Cambridge. She's at Harvard. She has this brilliant memoir out. It's I couldn't recommend it more. I go on Wikipedia and I see she's born the same year I was born. Uh, the same year you were born 1986 that's right <laughs> so a lot of a lot of people from our our generation our age are coming up i noticed deborah feldman is another she, another uh another memoirist from the year of the tiger uh like us so it's cool to it's cool to see people's experience and then when you know when they say i was 17 and this happened i kind of have a frame of reference at least a, like a historical context for what's going on so it's cool to see people people our age getting getting books out there um getting getting tv shows out there so on and so forth so yeah i watched i watched i, I just read educated uh, my friend gave me walden um henry david thoreau or the guys oh, isolation. Yeah, that's a good so uh, i just started that um i plopped down uh um a friend and i the other the other night plopped down the 399 to watch *Contagion*, which I haven't seen since it came out, and um, yeah, it's it's.
1: So how was what was your impression being in the midst of a *Contagion*? It's, watching it's contagion? quite
0: prescient, my friend, I must say. And you know, at the very end, they show how the virus, how the virus essentially started off, and it's like, I don't know, it's it's. I remember that part. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's chilling. It really. It's 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 chilling. So yeah, I was I was watching that. I went back and watched um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It was raining here in Los Angeles when when things really started to ratchet up here. It was it was raining for days, which, as you know, having lived here for a long time, is not that's not the norm for us. Um, But it felt very very Blade Runner. It felt it was a very kind of Blade Runner atmosphere. So I went back and watched that. I love that Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I thought was such a great. such a great, such a great movie and a good continuation of of that world that they built in the first one.
1: And a good time now for someone to market these like holla friends, right? Yeah, like, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, I actually, like, <laughs> that's so funny you
1: say that. Mackenzie Davis character.
0: <laughs> so I was scrolling through, you know, all my apps I mentioned, and I was on Prime, and I ended up seeing, you know, because I, yeah, I, I love her her was you know a classic movie from what 2013 a few years ago i saw this movie and it had the guy from curb your enthusiasm this actor richard kind and it's called augie i couldn't i didn't end up making it through the whole thing but he basically has these um ai glasses where he can see he can see this like his ai companion anyway so but you're right i mean as we spend more and more time in isolation you know it's it might be nice to have a little uh, virtual friend you know
1: you know Richard Kind is like my favorite actor. Of course I know Anki. Uh,
0: do you do really?
1: <laughs> yeah, Richard. Have we not? Have we never talked
0: about this? No, but he looks like Even Matt Swanson. In...
1: <laughs> yeah, you're right. So, no, so you're actually, a big Richard, I want you
0: to—you're a big Richard Kind fan. And, and
1: we've never talked about this. I actually want you to, like somehow reincorporate this into the podcast, but. I want to do a show, have I never told you to pitch a show for Richard Kind? No. I really would like you to keep this in the podcast because I want this to get out there somehow. But I want to do a show with Richard Kind. He's a terrific actor, just like a serious man. One of my favorite movies of the century. Just everything he's in, he's terrific. Of obviously career enthusiast, cousin Andy. But he needs to like, it's time for Richard Kind to like have a starring role in the TV show. And you know, one of these like Curb Your Enthusiasm type shows where it's him playing a version or exaggerated version of himself. Right. And it's just the straight to series order on Netflix. Kinder things.
0: Kinder things. Oh man, I love that. Kinder things. I love that so much. That's it.
1: And I want and Richard Lewis playing his brother. That's 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 the pitch.
0: Well, look, you're gonna bring. In, I, I think that's genius on so many levels. I mean, one, you're gonna bring in the whole Curb demographic. Everyone loves. Richard Kind, everyone wa- loves Richard Lewis. People who watch that show want want just want to see them more and more. At least I, I do. Richard Kind, who is who was he in *A Serious Man*? Was he the brother?
1: He's the brother with the who's kind of like the savant who has the tumor that has to get right, or, the right. Cyst or whatever it is, that's get drained.
0: Okay, right on. Well, I love that. I love that idea for a show. Kinder things. You really can't go wrong with that. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> And right. Um and now is this is this show gonna have some kind of a sci-fi element to it or, or are we leaving that are we leaving that out?
1: It could. I, I guess I could be coy, but that's pretty much the extent of I don't think you need more than that. I just think you need Richard Kind, little Richard Lewis or someone in that vein. Right. Just let him go wild. That's my
0: <laughs> I think you're pro- I think I'm I think you're right. I'm overthinking it. I have a tendency to overthink things at times, but I, I think that yeah, just just keep it simple. Richard Kind, throw some Richard Lewis in there and uh and you're good to go so i'll just ask you i'll just ask you this as we're we're winding up a big thing that happened on tv in the last year was this game of thrones finale now a lot of people a lot of the fans are out there feeling like those showrunners those writers david benioff db weiss really really dropped the ball now i want to ask you you know you're a writer. You spent a lot of time you, you doing this. You've been on set. You know all the different things that go into making a show. And, and, and you've a great you have a great great sense of story. What did you make of this Game of Thrones finale this final season in general?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, Game of Thrones, I just feel like there's never going to be anything else like it. It was the last collective watch that everyone's excited about, that we're all wanting to talk about. You know, I, like everybody, I wasn't, I thought some things were rushed. I felt like, I kind of felt like weirdly everything that happened, I I bought and and everything got to where it needed to go. But maybe how they got there, the speed at which things happened. Certainly like the, the teleporting around the world after it would take a whole season, someone to... For someone to walk across the continent or whatever, that that changed, but um, it uh, yeah, rang
0: false. Yeah, yeah,
1: rang false. But as as you know, uh, not surprisingly, I uh, have a tremendous amount of of empathy for writers, especially and having someone who's never been a showrunner but just like observed it on um, now on a show that is probably one one millionth the the budget and time and everything of not the heart and the story obviously but just in terms of like the the scale and scope of that production and the you know the balls that are in the air it's a hard thing man i mean like it is your whole life for however much it's running and as far as i know given Thrones they were filming in you know across various countries and continents and this was a decade of these guys lives and they were just like this show that I think no one really expected to succeed, even let alone become the biggest show on television and become the biggest budget in the history of television at that point. It's a hard thing to do, you know? And just like the I, I think this was totally me or a lot me projecting because this was like right when Unorthodox was in the middle of everything when these interviews would come out. And you know, you're on set, you have kids and families and and lives, but also. You're working nonstop on this show. When I've seen these interviews with Benny Off and Weiss, I'd be like, man, these guys, like, how do they how are they even still conscious? But you could tell it's like this has been a, a decade of these guys working on sure, this. They look sure. Tired. So I think uh, I'm impressed that I'm just like impressed that that anything like that can even be made, let alone be as fun and good and and attention grabbing as it was. So I,
0: I think that's I, I think yeah, and you definitely touched on it. Game of Thrones might serve as the last television touchstone for, for people, you know, something that's everyone is tuned in on a weekly basis. So we have one unorthodox is coming out this week. A lot of people are going to be at home tuning in. We might see a huge ratings bump. Is it possible for there to be an unorthodox season two, or is this simply a limited series period?
1: This is a limited series. It is what it is. I guess in the media landscape, as it is now, anything is possible down the line. But for how we're how we've treated it, and for like this is what we have to say on this uh, on this topic. It's the miniseries. Uh, there are no plans for a season two. Um, but I don't know. Half a decade. Who ever knows.
0: Is there anything that you wanna leave the listeners with uh, something that they should know heading into watching the this limited series on Orthodox?
1: Read the book, read Deborah's book. YouTube her and just watch her interviews. She's just one of the smartest, most thoughtful people. A, a lot, you know, this is something that I think a lot of the Jewish audience in America won't think about so much, but the idea of Judaism in, in Europe and especially in Germany is really complicated. Um, and has been since, especially since the war. And she just has a lot of interesting things to to say about it, and she's a brilliant person. Um, it's incredible that, as you noted, she's also, she's our age, because when I talk to her, she feels so much wiser. Uh, and I'll also <laughs> give a completely, <laughs> it's also weird, like, you see the difference in the communities where you grow up, right? From right. the same country, like, yeah. she's our age, I have a son who's two, she has a son who I believe is 12 or 13. Wow. And gave gave birth to him as detailed in her book when she was still in the community and she was like like got pregnant late, <laughs> you know? Right. She was like one of the last ones I think or for I think she was 20, I guess. Right. Um yeah, just interesting. And still comes from New York, you know, not like from like some rural part of the country, like from a major metropolis and just completely different life experience, which is really cool and interesting. And I'll also give a shout out, completely different, has nothing to do with unorthodox, but just with me, for all the, the German heads out there or <laughs> German listeners, <laughs> if you podcast, I have another show that I wrote on, did not show on, but was also a staff writer called Mapa. That is a, a, a lovely uh, sitcom or is, it was marketed as a sadcom uh, about a single dad in berlin it's german language it's got a broadcaster called join it will be, the air date's not official yet but it's going to be airing sometime uh in april or early may and yeah i guess look out for that if if you can find it if you want to I don't know if it will be subtitled or not, or if hopefully it will get U.S. distribution, but maybe you wanna learn another language, people are sitting inside, brush up on your German if you took it to high school.
0: I'm gonna track this thing down, man. (laughs) Sadcom, that's right up my alley. I can't wait. I know,
1: yeah. Basically made it for you. I'll send you a link. (laughs) I
0: I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I will
1: hand, I will subtitle it myself just so you can watch it. (laughs)
0: Daniel Hendler, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. It was awesome, awesome talking to you.
1: Anytime. Bring me back next time and let's talk about Watchmen.
0: Right on, brother. Take care. All right, that was that was it. Thank you to Daniel for being on the podcast. Man, I am really bummed out that they canceled Sweet Bitter. Anyway, I'm going to really quickly run down the availability of the shows and books that we talked about on today's episode, if anyone is interested in seeking them out. Sweet Bitter, my favorite show of all time, is available to stream on that uh, the Stars app. I know everyone has that one. You can check out The X-Files on Hulu. Blade Runner 2049 is available on Prime with ads, actually, through IMDb. It's, it's on there if you search for it. Deadwood is on HBO and Prime. And if you are interested in checking out the inimitable Richard Kind in a rare leading role, you can stream Augie. That's spelled A-U-G-G-I-E via the Prime app as well. Now, if you're a library card-wielding audiobook listening type, you can electronically check out free of charge, Unorthodox by Deborah Feldman on RB Digital. It's an app. If you're not familiar, you can also check out educated by Tara Westover, and that's on the Hoopla app. So those are also there for you. Now, as I've mentioned several times, Unorthodox is going to be streaming worldwide this Thursday, March 26th on Netflix. So be sure to check that out. You can actually go at this moment into the, your Netflix app and add it to your your queue, your list, if you like. And and finally, I, I just want to give a few shout-outs to some of the other people that were mentioned in this podcast. Matt Swissman, Daniel, and my the he's a childhood friend of Daniel and myself. The late great Kirsty McCall, who's out of print, Opus is a forever classic in my estimation. It's not currently available digitally but you can't find it on ebay or youtube and lastly i just wanted to shout out briefly she was mentioned my hebrew school teacher mrs finkelstein mrs finkelstein i hope that you are happy and healthy wherever you are out there and the same goes to you dear listener thank you for being with us this has been the creative pursuits podcast i'm your host Alex Crow, peace.